Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Larry Hancock, and he's published a book, March 2021. Title of it is Tipping Point, The Conspiracy That Murdered President John Kennedy. And he has been writing for 30 years. He's written many books. I've also done a lot of JFK um, interviews. He mentioned some people that I'm, I've interviewed, just Jefferson Morley, three or four times. Who just came out is coming out with a new book actually next month called Scorpion's Dance, if I remember correctly. <clears throat> but uh, so you can go back through my kind of over 600 interviews and maybe look at some of the other JFK inquiries I've done. But I'm delighted to have him. Larry Hancock brings his formal training in history and cultural anthropology to his research and writing on Cold War history and national security subjects. He's a graduate of the University of New Mexico and earned a BA with honors majoring in history, cultural anthropology, and education. Following service in the United States Air Force, he pursued a career in technical education, computer communications, and technology marketing. He then returned to his long-term interest in historical research. Known as a document geek, he re researched and published several, several collections of CIA, FBI, and military documents prior to, the beginning, prior to beginning his writing efforts. His document work led to his becoming a board member of the Mary Farrell Foundation, a major online interactive history archive. With a dozen books in print, his works include an exploration of long-term patterns in covert action and deniable warfare in two books, Shadow Warfare and In Denial. Also, the effectiveness of national command authority in command and control practices in Surprise Attack and the political assassinations, which we're going to cover today and tonight, of the 1960s, which are the books titled Someone Would Have Talked, Killing King, and The Awful Grace of God. And then his most recent book that we're going to discuss today uh, again, is Tipping Point, The Conspiracy That Murdered President John Kennedy. So, Larry Hancock, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, coming on to discuss your book. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, for people, you have a long background. You said you've been writing for 30 years. Can you kind of go through maybe some of your earlier books and kind of what led you to put together Tipping Point? Uh, sure. I, basically, the whole thing started. It, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I've you know, being 75 years old, I was alive at the time of the Kennedy assassination, you know, had a, a personal connection to that experience, the, the trauma related to that and that particular weekend with TV stations stopping their coverage. So, you know, I think everybody that lived through that had had a connection and some interest in it. And ultimately in the 90s, uh, I, I kind of got turned on to the subject again by a book by Jim Mars, who had, had been a local Dallas reporter who wrote a book about his experiences and and, and the Kennedy assassination and, and brought up a good deal of evidence that there were loose ends suggesting that it was far more involved than Lee Oswald. And that, that got me started. Uh, at that point in time, my wife saw a review of the book. She said, why don't you get it? I got it and read it. And you know, since then, since 1995, she's been going, why did I do that? You know, like, nah. why did I send you off in that direction? So that, that is what got me started. I spent, I spent probably five years doing kind of basic background research, looking at journals, doing a literature survey, and then started actually collecting documents and doing new research. I did a lot of at that point in time, nothing was online. You had to get information directly from the National Archives, hard copy and paper, 
And that's when, as you mentioned in the in my background, I started publishing collections of documents. And that led me to actually to start writing a book that was intended primarily for researchers and historians called Someone Would Have Talked, uh, which pretty long book, several hundred pages, which contained a lot of the information that I had turned up, much of which, quite frankly, was new at that time because uh, the JFK movie, Stone's movie, had just come out. The JFK Records Act had been passed, and by the latter part of the 90s, we were getting starting to see new documents. So that was the genesis of Someone Would Have Talked, which <laughs> I, I title it that way, uh, with a bit of, bit of humor in that the, the general objection to conspiracy was, well, if there had been a conspiracy, someone would have talked. And my, my effort with the book was to say, yeah, actually they did. It's just that nobody listened. Um, right. So that was kind of my starting point, if, if, if that makes sense. And then I went through on through another <laughs> couple of decades of research doing more book, more editions of someone would have talked as more documents were released. And it was just a cumulative effect that led me up to finally at the, at the end of this, you know, last decade saying, okay, what have I learned in all this time? And rather than being long winded, can I consolidate it and put it together in a book that anybody could read, <laughs> which led me to do tipping point. Gotcha. And so that leads up. So you've done the JFK, and but you've also looked into Martin Luther King, UFOs, and CIA political assassination. Can you talk about uh, a little bit about Martin Luther, your Martin Luther King books and uh, some sure. of your kind of yeah, please. We spent up my friend of mine, Stu Wexler, uh, who is a history teacher, and I spent several years on the King assassination. We we actually also did the same thing on the RFK assassination, kind of looking at all the political assassinations because one of the common memes in political assassinations has been that, that they must be connected in some fashion. So we, we wanted to explore that um, and actually did something interesting in regard to the King assassination. We started with the FBI in, investigation itself. And fortunately, at the time we started, uh, it was possible to do data mining to an extent that had never been done before. Documents were available online. We, we got, were able to get a picture of the assassination and the evidence related to the King assassination that the FBI offices themselves couldn't see at the time, hmm. which was pretty fascinating. And then we started interviewing people. We started interviewing FBI agents and going, look, you know, we know you were involved in the investigation. Did you know this? No. Okay. Did you know that? Here's what you did. Did you know these other people were doing this? Long story short, we found that the FBI had a lot of very substantive and important leads that they investigated very superficially, which pointed towards conspiracy but because they didn't have the rest of the story, they ended up not pursuing them, which ultimately led to us actually identifying an individual who had gone to the FBI in advance with a warning that there was a conspiracy to assassinate King. There was a $100,000 bounty. 
they had done a very superficial investigation of that and missed the story. Basically, they they had they didn't know what they had in front of them. We managed to locate him, interview him, and actually put to put together a picture of the conspiracy that no one had done up to that point. Yeah, and you, I mean, the title of the book says it all, the multi-year effort to murder MLK. So they, somebody was out to get him for a long period of time. And um, I just came across information that his brother died mysteriously too, right? In a pool, a drowning or yeah. something. If you... his, his brothers, well, of course, his brothers, his brothers were never in good health. Uh, but his, his brothers did, and it is not only, I would say, just died mysteriously, one of the fascinating things is one of his brothers, we actually found an FBI informant interview, and, and we took this to his brother and, and asked him about it. And in it, it, his brother was talking to a girlfriend, basically, who was an FBI informant, and you know, she put the question to him, like, would Ray did it? Did he do it? And, and basically, as responsible as James would, would absolutely do it for $100,000 which was exactly the bounty offer that we had found. And we found evidence that his brother certainly would have known that. Um, and, and I think an interesting point about that, which you just mentioned is what we really managed to do was to trace this conspiracy back over some four years to a, a group that had, had made a bounty offer had actually got a, a shooter in place was not able to come up with the cash. So he pulled out and the whole thing involved over four years to the point where they found another shooter that they could use um, and another participant that they could use. So it was, it was actually Dr. King was at risk for a number of years. And the, the, the sad part really was that it, it was a known thing to the FBI that he was at risk and they even, the day of after the assassination, the very first people that they interviewed were this group of white knights of the Ku Klux Klan because they were their primary suspects. Unfortunately, they did not have the background information that we were able to collect. And these guys managed to give them a very minimal alibi and they took a pass on them. Uh, so, these the people that were actually involved in the conspiracy were known and and suspects to the FBI at the time. The FBI just was unable to pull it together. Right. For, for reasons unknown. Right. I mean, I've heard that Hoover was involved in all that. And so there'd be a reason why FBI agents wouldn't follow up or, or complete a proper investigation. So you're you're the, I think the family's position, Martin Luther King Jr.'s family's position is James Earl Ray is kind of like Oswald. Right. Uh, that is the family's position. What we came to conclude was that Ray wasn't quite that innocent, uh, that that Ray was knowingly involved, um, but that Ray was being used. Yes, that he was being that he was manipulated, that he was being set up. The, in all honesty, the only thing that escapes us and I'm, we're always quite frank about our work is. James Earl Ray, if you look at his M.O., which we did from his previous crimes, he had a, a history of uh, impulsive actions, shall, you, shall we say. His role in the King assassination 
was not to kill Dr. King. His role was simply to stalk King, to support the attack, to carry the rifle to Memphis. Uh, his role was not to kill King. The question remains, since he knew that that role involved $20,000, but there was $100,000 for the actual shooting, it's unclear because of the way the evidence was bungled whether or not he might have impulsively taken the shot. I, I, I just couldn't say. There's evidence on both sides. And unfortunately, you, you brought the question, or you really raised the question, why would the FBI not pursue this? Unfortunately, as, as within the other political assassinations, Hoover and the attorney general kind of trapped themselves because within 24 hours, they had issued a statement to the nation that the attack on King was not a conspiracy and only one person was involved. The problem right. is... The, that that's happened, exactly what was in Tipping Point, too, right? Katzenbach yeah. said... right. So. Yeah, and, and when that happens, how do you go back on it? It's like, you know, do you really want the nation to go, well, next time are you going to tell me the same thing and then... Will you ever tell me there was more to it than that? <laughs> they don't like that. <laughs> right. And so this is the MLK is a lot like well, there's similarities between this whole thing. The lead up, like your book in Tipping Point, you go back to Cuba as really this kind of gestational phase, what was going on in Cuba, which which would 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 lead to November 22nd, 1963, right? Right. And that's what we found that there's a backstory. In all three political assassinations, uh, there's a great similarity to this, to the RFK assassination. There, When you look at the RFK assassination and you look at the inv investigation by LAPD and special unit senator, for the first two months, the LAPD absolutely had evidence there was a conspiracy. They mm -hmm. even knew had descriptions of who was involved. Of course, they had Sirhan, you know, but the problem was when they reached the point that they couldn't find the other people, they weren't a bind. They literally sort of like, well, what do we do? Do we actually, we've got this one guy that we caught with a gun and the DA wants to put him on trial. How about if we just ignore the rest of this stuff? We'll look a lot better if that happens than if we are forced to say, well, yeah, we think there were others, but we can't find them. I, I think when people talk about these kind of things, they never, they, they like to factor in grand conspiracies, but they, they kind of forget human nature. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, but the, the Oswald, uh, he was much more involved with the cold Cuban environment than people know. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes. He, he was not involved. He was not only involved. He was absolutely involved and had been involved in Cuba since he was in the Marine Corps. Uh, when he was in the Marine Corps, he was very interested in the Cuban Revolution. He even talked to his one of his friends, um, uh, Mr. Delgado, about both of them getting out of the Corps and going to Cuba to either to join the Revolution of Cuba or help, you know, help carry a populist revolution throughout Central America. So. He had been interested in the Cuban revolution and the Cuban cause even before he went to Russia. Uh, so he, he had a considerable backstory. And by 1963, having kind of become dissatisfied with his experience in Russia, he was pretty obsessive about Cuba, 
about, you know, that that populist movement and, and about going to Cuba for that matter. So he but he was the DRE that he kind of overlapped with, right? His being him being with Ferry and things like that. Exactly. Yeah, when he when he went to Cuba, a, a, a very strange thing happened. He, he went to New Orleans. He had already in Dallas. He had already written to the Fair Play for Cuba committee. He had done some leafleting in Dallas. He was really already into it. But when he showed up in New Orleans, the interesting thing is the first the first person he really contacted that we're aware of and it's documented is is a fellow named uh, Ernesto Rodriguez who ran a language school and Oswald, you know, thought he probably should start learning some more Spanish. He started talking to Rodriguez about, well, you know, who, who around here is interested in the Cuban cause. And, and, and it's interesting because um, Rodriguez was very anti Castro Cuban. Uh, uh, He was, he was part of the exile community and, at that point in time, Oswald began to kind of play both sides of the street, kind of like, okay, who are the anti-Castro Cubans? Who are the pro-Castro Cubans? And, and actually, when he got introduced to the DRE, the DRE folks were so suspicious of Oswald that they actually sent one of their members around to his apartment, representing himself as a Castro sympathizer. To kind of feel out well, which which way does this guy lean? So Oswald really kind of put himself in a very dangerous position when he entered the the milieu in New Orleans of, of associating with both anti-Castro and pro-Castro themes, and that that was a very riding the fence that way at that point in time in 1963 was a very dangerous thing to do, but. I, to add to that story, perhaps the most interesting point or one of the most interesting points that we have only learned within the last couple of years is that Ernesto's brother was a senior CIA officer working out of the CIA's Miami station in anti-Castro counterintelligence and political action programs. Uh, and so it's Oswald not only got introduced to the DRE, as you mentioned, but very early on, we can trace out that the CIA officers in the Miami station, as well as the DRE, were quite aware of Oswald. Oswald was, it's interesting when you, you, you read the Warren Commission or you read the official stories like Oswald is a lone nut and nobody knows about him, right? Well, by the summer of 1963, multiple anti-Castro organizations in Miami were writing letters to congressmen about Lee Oswald, talking about how dangerous Lee Oswald was, how he should be investigated, and how he was an example of, you know, terrible Castro-influenced subverting young Americans. It's like, wait a minute, there are people are writing letters to Congress about Lee Oswald in August. What lone nut? Right, right. So he's obviously not a lone nut. And you, the, the, you put a lot of this together through the whole Miami operation, through uh, decrypting a lot of these CAA fake names and Elias's aliases, right? Yeah, we we absolutely could not have known the story that that 
is written in Tippy Moore. We could not have known this story more than five years ago. And the reason we could not have known the story is that we, you know, we had tons of documents and a lot of them are, are very esoteric documents. My friend David Boylan does a huge amount of document work. And, you know, to really understand who's doing what, and especially who did what with and around Lee Oswald, you've got to know what people's jobs are. In fact, what we really had to do was to build a template of the CIA's Miami station, who was in charge, you know, what's the reporting line of reporting, who has what assignments, who's doing what activity. And you couldn't know that until you could get their true names and to get their true names, you have to interpret their crips and that's called crip busting. And that really, that's only come to fruition within the last two years so that we could see this story of really who was doing what and who was doing what around Lee Oswald. I mean, the bottom line is people have always have talked about connections between Lee Oswald and intelligence for years. And there are fingerprints of intelligence on Lee Oswald, but that's what they are. They're fingerprints. Lee Oswald was very well known to the FBI, the CIA, you know, again, he was not an unknown quantity. And I, we can actually sketch out certain operations that they were doing with his identity in 1963. Can you you talk about those? Lee Oswald didn't necessarily know all that. One one of the CIA officers described him as a useful idiot. Right. And so you came to the conclusion that it wasn't him in Mexico City, right? Probably the most honest way I can say it is the official story, the, the story that the FBI assembled for the Warren Commission of his trip to New York, to Mexico City and his activities at the the embassy is bogus. There, there are holes all through it. Um, that doesn't mean that Lee Oswald may not have been in Mexico. That doesn't mean that Lee Oswald might have done something in Mexico City. However, the FBI had to depend on two sources. They had to depend on Mexican intelligence and they had to depend upon the CIA for information about his activities at the embassies. Well, we can now, what we now know is Mexican Mexican intelligence was totally basically in the pocket of the CIA. Uh, The CIA had this, as if you've talked to Jeff Morley, Morley has written about this and, and made the case that whatever, whatever the CIA wanted to be told about Oswald in New Orleans would be what was told. And there's actually a memo <laughs> later on. It's kind of humorous in a way. Uh, later on, a couple of years later, uh, there's an internal FBI memo, basically of, of a group within the CIA saying, well, we want to do this project with the FBI. And Hoover sends it back and says, well, you can do the project. But just please keep in mind how much they lied to us about Lee Oswald in Mexico City. <laughs> so um, hey, what this, that's the problem is we just literally don't know other than the fact what we do know is there were things going on around Lee Oswald's identity in Mexico City with CIA counterintelligence and political action programs that the CIA 
busted its rear to conceal from the Warren Commission. Right. And you've discovered all of these new names in, that were in the Miami. What was it? It was a JM wave or what was the, the name of the operation in my, it was a huge operation, but it involved very well-known names in Intel. And I didn't know Angleton was really involved, uh, who, who I talked to uh, Jefferson Morley about as well. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, it's a JM wave station. And it, it had started out as just basically a base to support the, the first Cuba project, which was the first Cuba project ended up at the Bay of Pigs even though the project itself lasted for well over a year and it kind of, the way it was supposed to work had failed by October. They put it together in a second version, which was a disaster at the Bay of Pigs. They had to have a, a, a logistics base, an operations base to support that effort. And that was set up in Miami at, and they designated as JM wave after the Bay of Pigs, the station grew because the Kennedy administration continued its covert action policies against Cuba and cycled and recycled them through different projects. But in, in mentioning James Angleton, one of the one of the first things that happened after the failure at the Bay of Pigs is that it was obvious that the intelligence the, the Cuba and, and Russia and communicating to Cuba had known virtually everything about the landings at the Bay of Pigs. They weren't, a, it wasn't a shock that we had Cuban exile armada going into Cuba. There was a lot of warning that had been given. So actually Angleton was asked to look at this from a counterintelligence perspective and, and set up a better operation. You know, it's like we, if we're going to continue activities against Cuba, we've got to have a better way to conceal information, to get information. So Angleton actually worked with people at the station, including David Morales, who was ended up being a uh, base operations officer. But at the time, he had trained a lot of the Cubans who were going to be sent into Cuba at the Bay of Pigs as an intelligence group. He and Angleton and Morales worked together to set up a Cuban intelligence service. And so, yeah, you had, you had uh, Angleton working out of uh, with JM way over a certain period of time. You have David Morales, you have uh, of course a figure that if you get into this at all, it becomes Johnny Roselli was a, a essentially an organized crime uh, asset that the CIA had used to try to assassinate Fidel Castro during that first project. And then they brought him back to, for a second try. So John Roselli was involved with operations out of JM wave. Uh, it was a very, a very dangerous mix of people. I mean, it, I, one of the reasons I say dangerous is it, you know, you'd expect it to be dangerous because it's supposed to be dangerous to Fidel Castro in the end. Um, it was a group of people that became increasingly frustrated by all the transitions in different Kennedy administration programs, a group of people that were, had just been terribly bitter about the Bay of Pigs. And by 1963, I, I think it's fair to say, and I, I do give examples in the book that 
there were virtually no CIA officers or anybody involved with JM Wave that thought the programs that they were being asked to do had any value at all, that were ever going to succeed. They were just hugely frustrated by, by what they were being cycled through by the Kennedy administration. Uh, and and, and, and very frustrated with JFK and RFK, by that matter. Right, because RFK is involved in all this too. So they're angry at JFK and RFK. Can you talk about the blame shifting that took place after the Bay of Pigs and how yeah. how uh, some people felt about the involvement of, of JFK in that? And- yeah, that's a very sad thing. One of the one of the reasons it's so sad, I, I actually wrote another book called In Denial, which is a study of deniable warfare. And in that, I... I weighed deeply into the Cuba project and the Bay of Pigs. And again, this is something we've only known for since the late nineties, documents that were released, interviews that were done. The sad thing to me is that virtually everything you read about the Bay of Pigs in from JFK's perspective of, of why it failed and what was going on, quite frankly, is, is not correct. It is untrue because we didn't have, we weren't allowed to see the CIA's own internal investigation. We were not able to see the commission that was convened to review the failure. We And what we also didn't see was we didn't see the CIA historian's assessment of the project. All of those things became available to us by the late 1990s. Now we can have a real picture of what was going on, and we find that it was it's in direct contradiction to the the common story, if you will. What what really happened is the fellow who was in charge of it, Richard Bissell, had had set up this project. The Cuba project started in the spring of 1960, and the whole thing was to essentially create infiltration teams, put them into Cuba and create a revolution against Castro that would be in place before the elections. Uh, it was This was all supposed to happen before October. Uh, Bissell totally bungled the whole thing. It didn't happen. Eisenhower and Nixon were just appalled. They weren't even, hadn't realized that it wasn't going to happen. And then Kennedy got elected, and immediately Bissell switched the program to something uh, like a full-scale D-Day military-type landing on the beaches. Kennedy was very suspicious of that. Long story short, he, he did allow it to continue because he kept getting assurances that it was going to work. And he was new as a president. And bottom line is he, he in, in, ended up trusting Bissell and Alan Dulles as the CIA director. And it was a disaster. Well, What we know now is that after the fact, the primary, one of the primary reasons it was a disaster was related to air cover and airstrikes and, and, and support for the brigade as it was landing at the Bay of Pigs. And Bissell essentially lied about that to the people that reported to him. Uh, uh, Shortly a matter of weeks before the landings were supposed to occur, his two senior military officers went to him and said that it was going to be a disaster. 
because there wasn't enough air cover. There weren't enough air strikes. They needed more planes. This thing was going to die on the beaches if this didn't happen. Bissell told them he would make it happen. Absolutely. They both threatened to resign. And he said, no, you guys have got to stay with your job. You would be deserters. Otherwise, I will convince Kennedy to give you more air power. Um, what he did at that point was to go to Kennedy and tell Kennedy it was okay. They could reduce the air power because Kennedy was very worried about deniability. I mean, that, that sounds like a strong assertion when I say the head of the operation lied to the president and lied to the people that he worked for them. Um, we know this to be true because the documents describing this were taken to those two military officers when they became public in, in the 90s, and both military officers said, yeah, that SOB lied to us. I mean, it's, it's a matter of record, so I'm, I'm not making that up. And it's tragic. I mean, it literally is tragic. And from that point on, Bissell was actually allowed to write his own history of the operation because there was so much internal criticism. He was allowed to write his own history, and he was the one that communicated that history to the officers at JM Wave to the CIA officers that actually had been at the landings, to the Cubans that had been involved. It was, it was Bissell's story, not the internal CIA investigation that was taken down to Miami. And to this day, you will find virtually everyone in the exile community believing JFK deserted them, where in reality, it was Bissell. Wow. Yeah, it makes a huge difference because that's where all the resentment comes from, right? The resentment that leads to, that builds up over time, goes back to the Bay of Pigs and Kennedy's supposed handling of the event, right? It, it does, and you can get a sense of it. One of the officers who was actually at the landing, uh, named Grayson Lynch, wrote a book in the 90s. And his book is 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 invaluable because he wrote a book about First of all, why it should have succeeded, what the plan as he believed and what he had been told was involving the airstrikes and, and why it would have, would have succeeded. However, the plan that he writes about is not the plan that JFK approved. It was, <laughs> he, he, a lot of these guys were literally given promises and commitments that Kennedy never signed off on. Um, and in the book, basically, I, he his language is is quite clear. I'm not. He accuses JFK of being a traitor and knowingly having sent all the Cubans to their deaths to dispose of them. Now, if Grayston Lynch, who was at the Bay of Pigs, feels that way, Grayston Lynch was one of the officers who afterwards went to JM Wave and ran maritime operations out of JM Wave up through 1963. So you can imagine what the attitudes among the, the operational people, the Cuban exiles that were going on missions for that. They had to reflect that attitude. And as I said, it really is sad because, you know, he sincerely believed that Kennedy was a traitor because of the, the way the messages messaging had been passed down to Miami from Richard Bissell. And not only from Mr. Richard Bissell, 
his two mili senior military officers that I spoke of earlier were very embarrassed about the whole thing. After right. they Esther Lyon, Esther Lyon and Hawkins, is that their names? Yeah, mm -hmm. correct. The, after they were shown the documents and they realized the truth, they went, you know, I would, I, one of them went down directly to Miami immediately and started telling the story. And you could tell that he was appalled once he realized what he had done. Right. I mean, it's just incredible. So all that leads up, that's kind of like the tipping point, like the title of your book. It starts there and then it tips over. But that whole area, there was just so many characters there, Joannides, uh, Sturgis, a.k.a. Fiorini, these other, some of these people you mentioned, I, I weren't familiar with their names, the Lewis McWillie. William, William Moore, who was actually um, deputy chief of base. Nobody, nobody was familiar with these names. Uh, it, it's funny when, it, and it shows you how protected this information was. When the Warren Commission asked uh, Shackley, who was the chief of JM Wave, if he had had. When, when he was asked whether or not he had done any investigation of whether or not Cuban exiles might have been involved in the assassination, he absolutely said, no, that's not our business. You know, the Warren Commission, the commission is investigating. It's not our business. We didn't do anything like that. Now, you have to keep in mind Shackley was convicted of perjury uh, as part of this same set of testimony. But we actually now know a fellow named Tony Seforza ordered an in-depth investigation to collect every bit of information that might have pointed towards Cuban exiles. We know that because people who work for him described it. They described the questions that were being asked, the report that was supposed to be put together, and apparently all that occurred, but it never made it out of Miami. And apparently the suspicion would be this was an internal investigation to, to find out how badly exposed the people behind the conspiracy might have been, um, which is not a bad deal. But once you do that report, you don't send it at headquarters. Right. And I mean, there's tons of Cubans all around this whole situation. I mean, uh, anti-Castro Cubans are all over the place, but a bunch of big names. Uh, also, the mob, too. Roselli is friends with Harvey, who's there, right? So it's... Uh, yeah, Roselli, William Harvey. These uh, William Harvey, who was uh, actually had been in charge of one of the major elements of the follow-on Cuba project, including Cuban assassination activities, along with John Roselli. These people were all tied together. They they had all become. I think the way that you could look at it is there was kind of a nexus of people who had been trying to overthrow Castro and eliminate Castro for some four years by the time you get to 1963. They had, they had spent a huge amount of personal energy and effort and commitment. They felt that this was a very patriotic thing that they're involved in. And then what I reveal in Tipping Point is that suddenly, as of September, October, all of these people get the word that Kennedy is now decided to engage in diplomatic negotiations with Castro, which will start in November. Castro has made several offers to Kennedy, uh, which include K 
kicking out the Russians, going neutral, um, that starting in November, there may be a very quick resolution to the Cuba problem. And as, as somebody put it, it's sort of like, it's obvious to all of these people that all of their work, all of their risk will have been in vain. The guy that they already you know, thought of as potentially a traitor is now going to prove he's a traitor. And by the way, all you Cuban exiles, you're not going home. It's done. And so you can imagine the emotion and, and, and the time frame. It's kind of like, this is supposed to start in November. These, this dialogue is going to start. If we're going to stop it, it has to be now. Right. And you mentioned in the book, too, that Kennedy stopped using CIA and National Security Council contacts to go to Cuba. So he's using some woman named Lisa Howard, which is remarkable. Like it must have driven the national security state insane, apoplectic, right? Oh, it, it did drive them insane. And it, it basically, Lisa had established a, a reasonable relationship with Castro so that she could pass information back and forth. And, and even when Kennedy did reveal it, he started out the back channel negotiation with just Lisa Howard, the State Department, and a couple of people at the UN without even telling the CIA or the National Security Council, basically because he wanted to find out if this was a, a sincere offer from Castro, which it, it appeared to be. So even when he did reveal the fact that something was in progress, the CIA pushed back bitterly and said, no, you can't trust this guy. You know, we oppose everything that you're talking about. So uh, even though they, they know about it, and actually uh, one of the things that reveals their knowledge is suddenly the Cuban doctor, is Fidel Castro's doctor, who's going to be, has been a key back channel communications person who has never been of interest at all to the CIA, suddenly we see messages going to Miami and Mexico City asking them to find, you know, desperately find some way that we can start collecting information about this guy. Like they know what's going on and they are absolutely committed to blocking it. Well, um, Kennedy recognizes this. He understands this. So he's going to conduct the negotiations He's going to select a, a State Department guy from the UN, have him resign his position, and and go do the negotiations. But they have to do all this communications through a back channel. So they're using calls from the UN. They're using calls from Lisa Howard's telephone at her apartment. And after the fact, the people that are involved, and I, I have quotes from in the book, say, what we didn't understand, we were so naive we didn't realize that all the phone messages and 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 teletype messages going to Cuba were monitored by the NSA and CIA. Right. We so, we had no clue. We thought, oh, oh we would we, we'll just call and nobody'll know. Oh, well, in any event, so it, as you say, yes, Kennedy was trying to do this. He was trying to make it happen in the face of, you know, very strong opposition. And and one of the things contextually that has to be kept in mind, I mean, Kennedy was facing a real election problem in 64. Cuba would have been a real problem. Vietnam would have been a real problem. But if, if 
can you imagine the effect on the election if in a matter of two or three months he had convinced Castro to become neutral, kick the Russians out and, you know, remove the embargo? I mean, you cannot imagine a more positive contribution to his campaign. And if that had worked, who knows what he might have been able to bring off in Vietnam. Right. So Vietnam was in play. Cuba was in play. Very heady uh, environment. I mean, yeah. And you, you go through that background. A lot of the elements that I didn't know, you really got some of those details uh, in the book and tipping points. So I commend you for that. Do you have anything you'd like to add or anything I missed, Larry, before we wrap up this discussion? No, I think that really wraps it up. I, I think the one thing that that often comes out at this point is 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 the connection here. Uh, we, we talked about it a bit earlier in, in all the political assassinations where one of the problems in getting to, to the truth is that the people that are involved in the investigation often have things that they don't want to surface. You know, they've they make statements early on that they don't even know are, are untrue. And then as, as matters start to evolve, you, you can imagine the director of the CIA, McCord, tells Robert Kennedy, and by the way, to point out, RFK's first suspicion, and he said that himself on the afternoon, the first telephone call he made after finding out about the murder was to the director of the CIA to ask him whether or not the CIA had done it. Think about that for a minute. What in the world would make him think that? And I guess, why did nobody ever ask him? It's like, Bobby, why did you suspect the CIA right off the bat? But that was his first call. And of course, the director said, oh, there's no way any CIA officer could have been involved. Now, how do you back off that? They're just things emerged during the 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours that strongly suspected conspiracy. But by the time you'd reached that point, there had already been a directive to write an FBI memo saying Lee Oswald was the only person. It's hard to back out of those kind of things. Right. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. One of many good points. I'd highly recommend this book, Tipping Point. Very well read, uh, written, and you can follow your, your line of thought very easily. Um, where's the best place to get the book? Amazon is definitely the best place. Um, um, there is a version of it on the on the Mary Farrell site, but we have both an ebook and, and hard copy version on, on Amazon. That's the best place to find best it. Place. And you, all your books are on there as well, all the many books that you've written. And then you also have an active WordPress site, correct? I do. Larry Hancock at, on WordPress. And I, I blog pretty actively on, on a couple of different subjects. Yeah. And then people can contact you if they want to reach out to you on that WordPress site. Is that correct? Oh, they can contact me on the WordPress site or, uh, and, and there's a link uh, through, uh, through my, through Amazon to, to my WordPress blog as well. So yeah, actually that's probably the best way to send me questions. Okay, cool. And I'll put that in the show notes. I'll put the link to your WordPress site on there. But again, the author's name again is Larry Hancock. Full title of the book is Tipping Point, The Conspiracy That Murdered President John Kennedy. There's a lot more information in this book. Like we barely covered all the Oswald stuff you did and all that other stuff. But I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there.